You're listening to In the Open, a Mental Health America podcast, a space where we explore mental health and navigate the challenges of life through honest and candid conversation. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to In the Open. I have Teresa here um, with a guest, Kate Desjardins. (laughs) Hi, welcome, Kate. Um, Today's topic that we're talking about is understanding gender. Mm-hmm. And uh, do you want to introduce yourself to our visitors, our listeners today? Yes, thank you. So um, I am Kate Desjardins. I am a licensed clinical social worker in the state of Michigan, and I have a doctorate in clinical social work. So I do uh, some therapy with adults in private practice, and I also do qualitative research. And in both my uh my clinical practice and my research, I am really interested in understanding the really complex and diverse lived experiences of trans and non-binary people, both very much to um, offer like support to that community of which I'm a member, I'm a non-binary trans person, and also very much because I think that gender is something that affects everybody, regardless of cis, trans, otherwise. And so I'm very interested in the gender is kind of this like load-bearing construction. It holds a lot of different kind of weight and meanings for all of us, whether we're aware of it or not. And so that's something I'm really interested in exploring more and articulating more in my clinical practice and research. That's awesome. And so I hope we can start to unpack even just a little bit of that as we explore what gender means and 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 really pulling from your expertise. The first thing that came to my mind is I imagine people that come into your office and young people who come into your office and with their families, what are some of the first things that you kind of let them know when when we think about gender and and exploring this space? Yeah, I think the first thing I try to let people know when I'm working with them is that I believe who you say you are. Who you yeah. tell me you are is who I believe you to be. Yeah. And I think that's a really powerful way to begin yeah. because I think that's one of the biggest I would say difficulties facing a lot of um, gender diverse folks is there's a lot of skepticism. You know, are you sure? Is it just a phase? Everyone feels that way sometimes. And so it can be a really powerful thing when somebody says, I believe believe you. you." Yeah. Yes. Who you tell me you are, I believe you. Um, And of course, there's so much to explore about who you are because you're this complex, you know, incredible person um, with this rich inner life. So I want us to be able to explore and ask questions, but I think we have to start with those questions are not coming from a place of skepticism. They're coming from a place of curiosity, and we're not trying to prove, are you really this or are you really that? We're trying to deepen your understanding of who you are in relation to gender and in relation to other things. And those are very different ways of approaching gender, I think. But also really beautiful because I think for many adults, we often don't even know who we are. Like I regularly tell America that I'm in my 40s and I'm still unpacking who I am. Yes. So that is really beautiful. I imagine that, um, you know, I experienced mental health challenges as early as seven. I feel Mm. I I can remember that was the first time I experienced a panic attack and then Mm. struggled with suicidal thoughts at 11. But Mm. when then you don't get treatment until a lot later. And when I first thought of gender, I'm like that, 
I'm cisgender, even though it's interesting for me to think about, okay, as a person who says I'm female, how do I know I'm female? When did I start feeling female? Right? Yes. Yeah. And that, that delay, I like when does someone start to understand that concept? And when things don't feel right, when does when does a person get to start to unpack that in the yeah. context of treatment? And how does that delay affect someone in their life and in their well-being? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I think the question of when do you start to have an awareness of um, maybe your gender isn't consistent with what everybody's been telling you your gender is since you were born or before you were born, depending on you know, if your parents had an ultrasound. That's a really complex question that I think is really different for everybody because you know there's a lot of different factors that go into it. Gender is um, an intersubjective situation. So that means like my subjectivity, my subjective experience of yourself, of myself is coming into contact with your subjective experience of my subjectivity. So it's really powerful. So there might be, you know, I think that um, very young children have a very strong, innate sense of who they are in you know, gendered ways, but depending on their social surround, their, uh, you know, familial expectations, different religious and cultural circumstances, there can be a lot of reasons why that awareness might not kind of come to the surface as something that you can think about or explore for a long time, you know, at different points in childhood, but oftentimes adulthood, you know, I think 20s, 30s, 40s, and so on. There can be lots of reasons why it can be hard to let yourself know, like maybe there is something different about my gendered experience of myself and how other people gender me. A hundred percent. I feel like I've talked to many more adults even who the concept or the awareness has opened up this other space for them to to think of identity. And all I can do because I am cisgender is try to apply this to other places where I've I, you know, I recognize that, you know, when, when something was different, it does allow me to say and reflect, okay, I, this does not feel right. So what is right for me? And in that way, you know, um, I mean, at least in mental health, we're like, well, is this normal or not normal? Which is a weird, interesting phrase, because I feel like there was some part of my lifetime where that was a triggering kind of it it bothered me you know like ah I'm, I'm weird but now that i'm more comfortable in my skin and like comfortable acknowledging my mental health issues like it's not it's been a, it's been like a source of strength i'm like no i recognize that something was different and now i can look back and say okay how does that help help me shape who i am help me understand my understanding of the world but it would have been different if i had had less fear as a child, right? Yes, yes, absolutely. Like, so, you know, I think when I'm speaking on gender, I'm speaking, I can speak from like a number of different perspectives. So the clinician who works with gender diverse people, the researcher who is researching gender diversity experiences, and then also the person who's a non-binary trans person. And that was something that I finally allowed myself to know a few years ago um, and then began to share with other people. And I think that, you know, what's been really 
interesting for me, and I also observed this, um, you know, when I'm working with my patients, and I also heard this in the narratives that were shared with me um, by my research participants, it's almost like something clicks into place, like something you didn't even totally realize was missing clicks into place. And I, I think for me at first, it was very tentative, like, well, you know, I'm going to try on this trans non-binary. Let's just see, because it feels like it fits and it's felt that way for so long. And it's been this really compelling invitation. So let me just try it out. And then like, as I allowed myself to explore that and to share that with other people, just it was really fascinating how many things from my childhood and adolescence and early adulthood that seemed kind of discordant and strange and not bad, like not necessarily bad things or scary things or anything like that, like just things that always felt made me feel a little off and a little different and a little like, this doesn't seem to be how everyone else is experiencing this. Or I seem to be the only one who's like raising a fuss every year about why can't I be in the men's glee club? I can sing the voice parts. I seem to be the only person every year who's raising a fuss about why can't I go out for any part in the musical I want if I can sing the voice part? I seem to be the only one who has a problem with this. And it was like these things that kind of made sense. And there was a lot of uh, reconstellating, I think, my understanding of who I am um, and what I wanted, what I was interested in, what felt right to me. And I think like as that kind of reconstellating and that redesigning, that understanding of myself evolved like through my gender journey, um, it was like that discordant cord just resolved and there was like this release like almost like a, i would say like a physical it's like there's a sound on that you don't realize is on in the background till it turns off and then it's like this physical relief you know it doesn't make all the other like hard confusing scary parts of my life go away but it just like it 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 brings like a different like richer way of like understanding them and resting with them and you know, when you feel more solid in who you are as a person, like who you are is clear to you and how you understand yourself is clear to you, it makes it a lot more tolerable when other people don't understand you. Yes. I love that metaphor so much, you know, because that and what you landed on right there is so important. So I love what you're saying about something clicks. I, my brain went to a puzzle, but you know, like you're trying to shove a puzzle piece and it, it looks like it should fit, but it doesn't fit right. Yes. 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 <laughs> so you find the right puzzle and then it clicks. Yes. And it just, there's, I don't know, there's a satisfaction in that, but it also sounds like a there's like a warmth to it. You're like, this is where it's right, you know? Yes, yes it's like the tension releases from your shoulders, yes. your stomach re- unclenches, you know, and just like sensations you didn't realize you were holding on to until you're like, oh, right, the puzzle piece I thought had to fit there because there couldn't possibly be any other place that it fit. There is something else that fits better. That fits better. And then you landed on the way that when we – can click in that space brings on a confidence because you're fighting. If you're fighting in yourself and then you have to fight with other people to justify X, Y, or Z, then those two things are at battle. And that's a lot to take on. Yes. And then, you know, trying really hard to be like, I tried so hard to be a woman. Like, you know, I think I spent like all of my 20s, like trying so hard to be a woman. And I always felt like I was like watching how was everyone else doing it? And like, what were the things they were saying? And how are they dressing and moving? And I just could never quite get it right. And, you know, there's like that meme of like, 
Steve Buscemi with like his hat on backwards and his skateboard. Like, how do you do fellow kids? And that was like me trying to be a woman for so long. And then once I stopped trying to make myself be something that everyone had told me I was and started just letting myself figure out who am I actually, yeah, it just became so much easier to move through the world, like just so much easier. And even to deal with other people's lack of understanding or skepticism or confusion, that was okay because it wasn't stoking my own confusion anymore. And like, that's a really different experience. That's a, that's the kind of aha moment that I I don't know, as a clinician too, you know, you look for helping people find that sense of peace, that place where the puzzle feels right. So yes. I think that's really awesome. Let's talk about your research. Thank you. Yes. Um, so for my dissertation, so my uh, big doctoral research project, um, I did a qualitative study using um, the psychoanalytic case study method. And I wanted to learn more about gender in general to build like kind of theory about gender by learning more about how trans gestational parents made meaning of their gender and gendered experiences during the childbearing year. I chose this because pregnancy is a highly gendered activity, like in human culture. And so I thought that would be like a really interesting site to explore gender. And then um, so I I had five participants. They were um, trans and non-binary people who had been pregnant and given birth to their children. And um, I met with each participant for five one-hour interviews each, so a total of 25 hours worth of interviews. So I really got to spend a lot of time with these folks. They were incredibly generous. Um, This was um, fall 2020, so everyone is trying to, like, raise young children in the middle of a pandemic and this big election coming up that stirred up a lot of fear for people. And after the interviews with each participant, I poured over the transcripts over and over again to create a narrative of their experiences with coming to understand their gender, their childbearing experiences, how they decided to, you know, be pregnant and give birth. And then also looked for different themes that emerged um, in terms of their relationships with gender and their bodies. After I put together those case studies for each participant, each participant got to read and review their own case study and then um, just talk with me to affirm that my interpretations of their material uh, felt accurate and resonant to their experience. Once we did that, then I identified some kind of big overarching themes that kind of came out of taking all of the case studies together. So I think the biggest theme that emerged was that gender is a highly subjective experience. So in our society, um, in, in a lot of societies, we think of gender as something that other people give you. So you're born and the people around you look at your genitals and say, based on the shape of those genitals, you are a boy, that is your gender, um, or you are a girl, that is your gender. And then consciously and unconsciously, they begin to have expectations of who you are, what you'll be like, what your interests will be, what your strengths will be, your weaknesses, how you will show emotion, like all of these expectations based on this gender that they've given you based on something they saw on your body. But what emerged in every conversation that I had with my participants 
or with every participant was that oftentimes their train of thought would come around to talking about like their sense of self, authenticity, autonomy, self-determination. These themes very much related to selfhood. That really led me to see there is a, a relationship between gender and the self and that gender rather than being something that is kind of given to us by other people, maybe gender could actually be thought of as a way that we translate something of our internal experience of ourself outward to other people. And then the problems come in because people are expecting no gender comes from the outside. So I'm telling you, I've, I've already decided what your gender is. And now you're telling me it's something different and you think it comes from inside. And that seems to be where a lot of conflict comes in and a lot of confusion is because other people expect your gender to be something instead of giving you a chance to say, this is me. If we had a world where we could let all people explore gender when things naturally arise, when society or the expectations clash with the inside understanding of self, as you say, what are the ages that are that like when as a parent would I see this happen and then like create a conversation with my children? That's a great question. You know, so it was interesting because there was um, there was one person in my study who they and their spouse, they're both non-binary, decided um, not to share with anyone else the sex that was assigned to their baby at birth. So they just wanted their child to not be encumbered with gendered expectations. Um, they didn't want that to be something their kiddo would have to unlearn or, you know, it was just wanted to have like this whole open field of exploration. But all of the other participants did accept like the gender assigned at birth, use the pronouns associated with that gender. And, um, you know, did speak to that, you know, just in the sense of if at some point, you know, our child lets us know that she, her pronouns are not the right pronouns for her, we'll just switch. It's okay. Like they, they were kind of saying like, even if there are certain gendered expectations people will put on our baby, um, we're still going to be open. We're still going to teach her that gender is flexible. It's something that is played with. Um, there's not just one gendered meaning for anything. There's multiple gendered meanings. So it's really like at any age, I think, you know, kids definitely, I, you know, in my experience, um, Clinically and as a parent myself, like gender really starts to become a thing in like preschool, like three or four, when kids are really, you know, cognitively trying to sort things into categories, like figuring out what are the categories that exist and how do you know kind of what belongs in what category. And they're doing this with everything, um, with toys and food and animals, like that is what you're doing at that age. If what they're told is, well, there's two categories, there's boys and there's girls, then they're going to keep trying to sort into those two categories. But I think it's possible to, you know, say like, well, there's boys and girls and then there's people who don't fit into either category, you know, and it's it's not necessarily a third category of gender. It's almost like there's maybe so many categories of All gender. categories. Yeah. Yeah. And sometimes we... Um, you know, we usually guess what gender someone is when they're a baby, but sometimes later on, they let us know that we guessed wrong and that's okay. Maybe we guessed wrong with you and someday you'll let us know and that's fine. And I think it's really being open. Like that's something that folks ask me about a lot is like, you know, my, my five-year-old or six-year-old, you know, we think she's a girl, but she keeps, you know, wanting, you know, telling us she's a boy and wanting us to use he, him pronouns and only wanting to wear, you know, boy clothes and 
what should we do? And I always say like, just meet your kid where they're at. If your kid is pretending, if your five-year-old is insistent that they're a kitty cat and will only respond to like tinkles and, you know, wants to wear a little bell necklace, you probably are going to let them do it because after a few weeks, they're going to move on to the next thing. So if ultimately at the end of the day, your kid really is just going through a phase of seeing what it's like to be a boy and be called he, him, and maybe a different name and dressing differently, even if at the end of that time, they're like, actually, I'm a girl, call me this again. The worst thing that happened is your kid knows that you support them unconditionally and will believe them and will follow their lead when they're telling you something about who they are. And like, as far as worst case scenarios go, that's a great scenario. Like that's a really ideal scenario. And I think that's what most parents, like what we want for our kids is we want our kids to know, like, I listen to you. I believe you. When you tell me something about who you are, I will trust that you are the expert of yourself and I'll follow your lead. And yeah, if it ends up being, I am a boy, I've got you. I've got your back. I'm there with you. But if it ends up being like, it was cool being a boy for a few weeks and I think I'm a girl for sure. Great. Now, you know, mom and dad are always in your corner no matter what. Yeah. We can't go wrong, basically, if if we Mm -hmm. take a stance of being a support person and being on this journey with ourselves and with our children to explore who we are and our identity, right? Yeah. It's nice to be able to root yourself in something because I think parenthood in general Mm -hmm. is always really just like, it's so hard. Like, there's so much fear. Yes, yes. It's awful. Like, this is the most precious human life you've ever encountered. And you love that life so much and would do anything to protect and nurture that life. And like, you're fully responsible for it. And the world is a scary place and things are unpredictable. And that's a really intense burden. It's really, really, and it, and then it's like, it's still a relationship, which we know relationships are complex and intense and messy. So it's like a heavy burden, I think. It kind of reminds me of the way, even as a society, we've also are now struggling with race identity and, mm-hmm. and this notion of, I am in a mixed race relationship. I don't, I will not know what it's like for my child to be Asian and white. Right? right? But we talk about this all the time. And we talk about how we didn't grow up necessarily talking about race. Right. Or I did more than my husband did because he's white. Right. right? right. In the end, you can guide. But the most important thing is to be there with them and to instill confidence in their yeah. ability to explore who they are and to say firmly that they are. Something something I do think is interesting, I'm going to apply this race side, is like, you know, you say, well, I'm half Asian or half white, mm. where like in with trans or non-binary identity, you might say like, I am half mm. female, half male. But there's also been a shift with mixed race. We're like, no, you're 100% Asian and 100% white. Yeah. Yeah. You're like, oh, you get to be 100% male and 100% female. You get to take in all of the best qualities right? both genders and identify right. who you are and what you like and how we di- identify these concepts is interesting right. too, right? In a shift. Right. It's like, I think the shift is like away from this binary, like you either or, you know, and then I think like on our way 
from like, you're either this or that. We kind of were like, you're half of each. And now it's like, no, it's like more of a, you're both and neither at the same time. Like you're both and neither, like it's its own kind of binary transcending experience. Yeah. You're kind of embodying this paradox of being both, you know, we could say both male and female, both white and Asian, and also neither male nor female, neither white nor Asian, like you're both and neither at the same time. And, you know, it's kind of making room for that complexity of like, that's a unique experience to have either to be, you know, to not fit into either side of the binary um, and to not necessarily be half and half, but to be something that is both and also completely distinct. I think as an adult, you know, I've adult people in my circles who are now struggling with gender, we all are reflecting as adults like, well, why why did I settle so easily into X or not settle so easily <laughs> into X? What would my life had been like if I had grown up in a place that allowed me to not make assumptions about identity? Yes. And I, you know, I'm really glad you're bringing that up because I, I think that that I think what you're speaking to is that there is um, there's like a, a grieving, a mourning that I think gets activated, um, you know, especially for adults like those of us who feel like I am who I am. And like, you know, kind of I think even you know, it's, it's grieving the experiences you never got to have and just you, you never will get to have. Like if you are a non-binary adult who did not have the language or space or safety or freedom to say I am non-binary until, you know, your 30s, there's a non-binary childhood that you didn't get to have and will never get to have. And that is something that really does have to be grieved. Yeah, you know, that's a that's a loss. And I but I, I think that um it can be difficult sometimes. Like we can be very resistant to grief. And so I think that we can resist that grief by becoming skeptical, where it's like this other person, you know, kind of, you know, maybe our child or a younger friend or something is saying confidently, like, this is my gender and this is who I am. And it's just an option that wasn't available for us for whatever reason. And I think that it can stir up some pretty profound feelings of jealousy and longing. And so it's what do we do with that? Do we say, like, I'm feeling jealous, I'm feeling a sense of loss and longing, and that's for me to explore and grieve, go to therapy and explore with, you know, someone. Um, But it can also be resisted and turned more into doubt and skepticism and are you sure and you know trans is a trend and this is all made up you know like resisting that grief of what could have been possible for me if I knew that even just exploring gender was something that you could do um maybe you're not because you might not be trans or non-binary you might be cis and it can still feel like a big loss like I didn't know I didn't know that that was something to explore. I, I didn't know that was something you could question in that way. And what could have been different for me if I had known that? And now I have to grieve that, but I might resist grieving that and kind of put that on the other the other person. Absolutely. Even as you say it, I can tell there are things that come up in my brain automatically, yeah. you know, like maybe I would feel more confident. Maybe I would feel like mm. I could take space. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. And not feel afraid, you know, yeah. uh, about, I don't know, like having an opinion, Who all, all kinds of things that sometimes society puts expectations onto us because of gender. 
Mm-hmm. So yeah, that's super interesting. When you think about working with your with your individuals and with your families, what's if if you could impart one piece of advice? Mm. I think that like the greatest strength in a relationship can also be like one of the most challenging, which is trying to be wide open to who this other person is and to, you know, in some ways like continually be holding assumptions about who this person I love is likely, um, to be willing to set aside those assumptions if that person I love is saying those assumptions are incorrect, be willing to continually shift and self-reflect, you know, so it's, it's, I would say it's like be open to the experience of the person that you love and then kind of acknowledging what goes into that openness because it sounds really easy, but it's actually, it's a lot of work. But if you, it's work that's worthwhile. If you can be open to your loved one being different from who you thought they are or who you thought they would be or should be or would be happiest being, if you can set that aside and allow yourself to meet the person that your loved one is telling you they are, you will be rewarded with a depth of, you know, relationship and intimacy and connection that just isn't possible when that openness is not actively being practiced. We could literally turn this to just any parenting podcast episode. It would be so important to 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 take a stance of of openness. And I think that is hard for parents because we're told so early on as parents that we're supposed to know better for our children. Right. You know, and so much of society is like that. The expert knows better about your mental illness than you, which is absurd. Right. But so like parents are the experts in children's lives. Like doctors are the experts in sickness. Mm. But in doing that, we've robbed ourselves of the most important thing, which is what you were saying is like join your child, have openness to this experience and see what that openness can teach you about who you are, who they are and what life is. Yeah. It's like kind of shifting from like a hierarchy of like, there's one who knows and one who doesn't, whether it's doctor, patient or parent, child to these are two experts who are coming together to share two different areas of expertise and we can collaborate and come up with something that's so much more effective and accurate and connecting ultimately than we ever could in this hierarchical situation. The parent parent has different, more experiences in the world just by virtue of being an older person, but that doesn't mean your child isn't coming in with their own developing deep expertise about who am I, how do I experience myself, and when we can really look at it more as like a a meeting of the minds, a collaboration where both parties have something equally of value to offer each other. That's like a totally different paradigm. It creates a a much more interesting life, I think, like, right, when you if we shift from what I've been robbed as a child, what I've been robbed as an adult to what we have been robbed in society. Because that's the more than, like, if it's not binary, it's expansive, it's more than, and we've all robbed ourselves Mm -hmm. from, from that Mm -hmm. experience of seeing like the strength in these perspectives and the way that create identity and mysteriousness and understanding in, in really big ways. You know, there's just so much more possibility for like realness, like authenticity and connection and just actually getting to like, 
really know each other. And love, like that's maybe what love looks like. What love really looks like is co-creating. And I also think that what's interesting too, I don't know if you saw this recent research, but I'm sure you see it. Like children before they go to school are so creative. Uh Uh-huh. They uh-huh. ask so many questions about the universe and who we are and and they come up with the strangest things. And then we kind of crush that, right? Through school, through structure, and 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 and, and it happens so early. I think earlier than we ever are afraid to acknowledge because of the grief. Yes. Yeah. And, you know, like that internalized hierarchy, too, of, you know, kind of like without realizing it, like maybe we bought into this idea of like there being a hierarchy of expertise and knowing like, you know, kids ask why all the time before they go to school. It's really difficult. Like I committed when my kiddo started like talking and asking why, like I was going to always try to like encourage. I would never say like, stop asking. I would always, you know, encourage and for a little bit started to get really exhausting and draining because I was like, well, I don't know why. And I was putting a lot of pressure on myself to know and to be the expert. But when I started kind of turning it back to my kiddo, like, well, I'm not sure. What do you think? Like these incredible imaginative responses. And like, honestly, who cares if it's right, you know, in quotations or not? Like, because a lot of these things are big existential questions. What does it matter? Like, it doesn't matter if it's right or not. It may indeed contain a kernel of truth um, or resonance. Um, But it's really about saying like, you have a mind and you can come up with ideas. And these are great questions. And I, I think you should keep asking them. And I think you should also consider your own answers to them as well. And that, yeah, I think like to what you're saying, like that would just open up so much possibility, not just in our relationships, but in our world, because our relationships is what, that's what builds a world. You know, world is just lots and lots and lots of relationships. So there's a lot to gain from that. And I I love that little kernel um, about parenting and being comfortable with saying, I don't know, is something as parents, Mm -hmm. we we feel that pressure to say, well, I know, I know that you're a female or I know that you're a male. It's like, well, it's okay. It's okay for us to not know. So if you practice not knowing in all contexts of what it means to be a parent and raise children and, and honor their personhoods, I think that's freeing too. I think so. I mean, ironically, I think the biggest benefit of my, like the process of getting a doctorate was getting comfortable with saying, I don't know. Like, I, I don't know. I, I And being comfortable not knowing and being willing to not know, because then you can be curious. You can be open to other ways of knowing. Um, and, you know, not just being comfortable not knowing, but being comfortable acknowledging, you know, what I think I know and what the things that I know aren't necessarily the only thing to know. And kind of being willing to decenter my knowing to make room and be open to others' ways of knowing um, without having to rank them or create some kind of hierarchy of who knows more or whose knowledge is more right or more real, but more just how can we enrich our knowing by decentering our own knowing. Because then after doing that, you can open yourself up for joint discovery. Yes. And co-creating, like you were saying, that joint discovery, that co-creation, which is really magical. Magic. So beautiful. I love it. Well, then we always end our podcast um, just saying, you know, we hope everybody continues to fight in the open and share of ourselves vulnerably and beautifully. Yes. 
Yeah. This is a lovely conversation. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thank you for having me. It's been lovely. Thank you. Awesome. Bye, everybody. Bye.